seeing is believing and I have no proof of what I saw that day other than what I can describe. It was huge. It was like the weightlifter of cats. I think he's seen a black leopard, no doubt about it. He's just a guy taking his dogs for a walk who's bumped into something that he can't explain and wants to tell people without being mocked about it. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Big Cat Conversations. Our first guest is Paul from Essex. And before our interview, we are going to begin with a clip from a live recording made by Paul on site when this event happened just recently on 16th of August 2020 in South Essex, where Paul lives. So here is Paul speaking into his mobile phone just after he had taken several photographs as the animal was moving away a bit in the gloom at dusk. OK, the time is 20.55, Sunday the 16th of August 2020. I've just taken a series of photographs of what I believe to be a large black cat. Uh, I took a bunch of photos and I've basically turned the car around to shine the light into the field. I can just about see the top of this cat still, but it's just not good enough for video. I think I've got some half decent pictures on camera. I'm very reluctant to walk into the field. I'm a licensed radio amateur i came up to the top of the hill to try and work some other stations and then this thing just walked across the field right in front of me boulders brass you can probably hear it in my voice i just wish the camera was better maybe with a bit of jiggery pokery we might be able to pull something out of the video i can see it it's ducked down in the field so basically what happened was um, from where i'm standing i am facing west or thereabouts I just came out of the car to change the antennas over and it started walking across the field in front of me. It is, I'd say, bigger than a spaniel. It's just slightly shorter than a Labrador, but it's long and it's got like a really, I don't know how to describe it, like a tubular tail. I know this sounds hokey because I'm actually interested in big cats and listen to some of the podcasts. So I'm filming this as evidence, a witness testimony that this is happening. I can't believe this, my stomach is going over. And um, I, I can still see the top of it, it's like a, a hump in the field. Um, the field has been sort of freshly harvested, so it's actually quite low. I think the stalks are probably about five inches tall. I would dearly love to go over there. Okay, it's now moving towards the hedgerow. Okay, well, there's not much else I can do with video. Ah, now I can see some movement again. Okay, I'm going to put this back onto stills and see if I can get some more pictures. Um, I can't believe this. I really can't believe it. Absolutely shocking. Okay, um, I don't know what the time is now, but uh, I'm going to sign off the video because I just can't see anything. Um, For the benefit, actually, of this, if you see that white light, So there are two white lights currently. The white light to the right-hand side, below that is the hedgerow, 
and then directly at the bottom of the hedgerow and as my eyes see it probably three or four inches to the right that's where it is ducked down in the field right okay i'm going to stop videoing now and uh, see if i can get some more photos so paul thanks for coming on and welcome to the show hi rick thanks for having me well done for recording that that we've just heard this paul for you must have been an extra surprise because you've recently developed an interest in it you've recently started listening to the podcast so good on you thanks for that and can we start by just reviewing the animal you were watching what struck you about it one of the main things that stood out to me was the fur. Uh, the fur was incredibly dark. It looked pitch black and it almost looked wet with a like a sheen to it. It was shiny. It was a really a beautiful coat. The tail, uh, the tail as, as described in many sightings was like a pipe. It was curved, but it never came above the height of the back of the animal. It stayed quite low most of the time. Uh, there was a slight curve at the end, but most of the time the tail stayed relatively low to the ground, I would say. As far as the sort of the lines of the cat, the head stayed below the back as well, but not markedly so. It just didn't raise above it. So you could almost draw a direct straight line from between the ears directly along the back of the animal. And the only thing that broke that was an undulating area above the front legs, uh, the, the shoulder there. So that, that was undulating as it was walking forwards and was really quite noticeable. Um, as somebody who's owned cats probably for most of my life, actually, it's not something that sticks out with house cats as much as it did with this. It, it really was noticeable. And the scale compared to a dog, the usual question that we ask? In the half-light, I was guessing at possibly about the same height as a fully grown Labrador. Certainly longer, really quite a long, sleek and slender animal. But height-wise, no higher than a Labrador. Yes, OK. And the length of the tail? Seemed strangely long, proportionately much longer than a house cat. And how far into the observation, into the sighting itself, did you realise or think, I'm watching something like a Black Panther and not a deer or a dog or something else? Almost straight away. I was outside of my car and my gaze went into the field where this animal was. Because it stood out against where the crop had been cut, so it had recently been harvested, it was a perfect silhouette really against the backdrop of the field. The light was in that direction. I was facing west. So came into my eyeline straight away. Immediately, it just looked different to anything that I've seen before in real life. You could tell it wasn't a dog. It moved like a cat. It had real poise. It moved like a ballerina, but incredibly powerful. It was muscular. As it was walking, it was almost cocky. It was very nonchalant. It really didn't seem to care about being seen. So it was walking with a purpose, really. Do you think it was walking from A to B or on the lookout for rabbits or even thinking about deer opportunities? Or was it difficult to tell? So thinking back on it now, when I first saw it, it just appeared to be walking to a place. Certainly just after halfway through the sighting, and I, I should say I had it in my vision for approximately 15 minutes. So it was a good long sighting. 
at one stage, it sort of ducked down and appeared to be stalking. But that didn't continue for very long. So whatever it had seen either moved off, but I couldn't see what it was looking at. That was one of the noticeable changes in movement. To start with, it appeared like it was just moving from A to B. I did something rather silly about halfway through the sighting, and I just shouted oi at it, as you do. How disrespectful, Paul. Yeah, well, indeed, I was quite rude. But it got its own back. It turned to face me, and I noticed how slender it was across the body as it faced me. It was in silhouette, so I, I couldn't really see the face that well, but it sat down on its hind legs and just stared at me, really. I felt rather silly for shouting away at it and uh, decided not to do it again. You felt far enough away to take that risk, did you? Yes. I mean, thankfully, I, I went back the next day and actually measured how far it was. So I'm happy that I would have been able to make the 10 feet back to my car. I was only happy, bearing in mind that I could see it, certainly at the end of the sighting, when the light was really failing. And I realised that the animal had a much bigger advantage over me than I had over it. Fine. And, and so that leads us on to your emotion during the experience. And yeah, at the time, how are you feeling emotionally? At the time, I was initially really taken aback. Um, and then as it dawned on me, which probably only took a few seconds, I, I then became incredibly excited and felt very lucky. I was sort of kicking myself because the phone was in the car and I really wanted to be standing still and not moving at all. However, you, you sort of have to make that decision of just being an eyewitness or making an effort to try and gain some evidence of its existence. It's rare for people to have the opportunity and it to be at the right distance and for them to feel safe and composed to take a photo. But you presumably felt you had long enough to try to film it without ruining the experience. I did, yeah. It wasn't bothered that I was there at all. So I, I didn't see it as it was going to take an opportunity to run off. And bearing in mind, it was in the middle of a field. So by the time I got the phone out of the car, which I say was only about 10 feet away, um, it wouldn't have been able to have moved that far unless it was running full pelt. So I just took the opportunity to go to the car and pick out the phone, which was on the dashboard, and just started snapping away. You took several photos in stills, didn't you? And some people, of course, only take one, but you had time to snap away. I did. And subsequently, I was glad that I did because I was using an iPhone and the live photo system within the iPhone, it, it takes a short video and then chooses which is the best frame out of that video to use as a still. So I was able to use an app on the phone which turned the live photo, so that little section of video, turned it into a GIF. So I was actually able to see animation afterwards and uh, I was really pleased that I'd done that. And looking at the photos, the light is low and it does spoil the definition, unfortunately. And the tail is not really apparent much. And of course, the tail is such a crucial feature to include. So what did you think of the photos once you've reviewed them? The pictures aren't good enough to make out detail. So I think potentially that the tail has got lost in that noise the picture noise if you like along with some of the background um it's something that i saw so i i do know it had it it's just unfortunate and i think perhaps if the light was better that we may have got some semblance of a tail in that picture 
it is so frustrating that if it was five minutes, ten minutes earlier, you would have had some of the best range of snaps of a big cat walking through a field that anybody has seen. But you haven't, unfortunately. I think it was just the the time. You know, five, ten minutes made all that difference. Absolutely. So the first photo that I took was at 8.48 p.m. And the light to my eyes wasn't too bad, but obviously the phone is not as good as the human eye. Um, and I was really kicking myself for not having a decent camera with me. But but in fairness, I never carry a decent camera. I'm assuming that it had broken cover to go and eat. I think you told me previously that that's a time of day where the animals would go to do that sort of thing. I guess I was just at the mercy of the light. Yeah, 15 minutes. Yeah, that is one of the longest sightings that I've known. I did know a couple in the Stroud area, Nailsworth area, many years ago, about 10 years ago, have a 13-minute close-up watch of one. It was, I think it was half the distance away, but that was in the days before most people had mobile phones. They reckon that one was foraging for rabbits because of its behaviour. It was perfectly aware that they were watching, they felt safe, and they went back several times. I know you've been back, and it's potluck, isn't it? People rarely see them going back, but when you go back, you take a better quality camera. I did exactly that. I came home, charged up my Canon DSLR, and then uh, went back 45 minutes earlier than my sighting on the next day in hope that anything around me that had been disturbed by my arrival would have calmed down in the hope that uh, it was taking the same route again. What I found quite interesting about it in sort of comparison to the original sighting and then going back in daylight is that I thought it was approaching another hedge in order to follow the line of the hedge. However, once I'd gone back in daylight, I was able to see that what I considered to be the hedge was actually unharvested crops. Mm -hmm. So it it could have carried on in a straight line through that field afterwards. But the, the reason it stayed in my sight for so long is that as it was approaching the line of the crops, it just sort of was squatted down, really. So I was able to see the top of the body. It was just slightly in dead ground over a brow, but I could see it. Yeah, it just wasn't bothered about my presence at all. And the follow-up, was it the next day or the next couple of days, you went back to do an initial scaling exercise. I think you're going to go back again and do it a little bit more precisely because you didn't have this system where you make a transparent photo of your best photo that you can hold up at the spot and look through it so you get your scale prop reference for the reshoot exactly in the same position. Can you explain what you did and what initial hunch you have about the scale? I'll give the result first. I believe that the length of the body, not including the tail, was somewhere around three and a half to four feet from shoulders to haunches, if you like. So the tail on top of that. So to explain how I did the scaling, I took my daughter with me and gave her the phone that I took the pictures on and basically got her to talk me through the field whilst looking at the pictures. We decided on one particular still that we were going to use, and she talked me into that position. And I'd taken with me a black plastic barrel that I usually take kayaking. (laughs) I put that on its side uh, to sort of represent the main body of the animal. Looking at the two pictures, I don't think it's very far off, but you're absolutely right about the acetate. And I was unable to get an acetate made up, unfortunately. It's certainly still on the list of things to do. I'm reasonably happy with the scaling that we've done so far, and uh, I I appreciate that angles and lighting make all the difference. In fairness, I think the length of it, 
probably came up slightly shorter than I thought it was. But it's interesting to see what difference the lack of light makes to your perception. Yes, but it's still in the zone of what you... It's it's pretty much in the order of magnitude of, you, that you were considering, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's not far off at all. And, and I'm glad I've done it, because even if it had managed to disprove the sighting, I would have been happy in the knowledge that I hadn't seen something that was a big cat. Albeit, I'm very pleased that I've come away with it thinking that I have. Yes, sure. Looking at pictures of black leopards, which I had since, I mean, when I first saw it, I was thinking jaguar or panther. And, and unfortunately, I, I didn't really know what they looked like. <laughs> so, and, and certainly the sizes weren't the same. But looking at a black leopard and certainly looking at various pictures on Google and videos of them in the wild as well, I'd say it was pretty spot on. So whilst it might be on the smaller side, it certainly felt right. Yes, and they can vary. A female one would be just a little bit bigger than a, a Labrador, and a male would be considerably more, more like a long-stretched German Shepherd or even a bit bigger. So they can vary depending on their diet and age and gender. You didn't get any impression of the gender at all, did you? Certainly looking at the way it moved, it was incredibly graceful, which I, I'm assuming is common to both sexes. It was just beautiful. It really was beautiful to watch. And you spoke to a local stable worker or stable owner, didn't you, about it the next day? I was trying to trace the owner of the field. And opposite the field is a livery stables. And uh, so I popped in and spoke to the lady there. I said, can you potentially tell me who owns the field? I'd like to go and speak to them. And she says, well, I I do know who owns the field. What's it about? You know, quite defensive, really. So I I just told her outright. I said, well, I I was up here last night and I believe I had a sighting of a very large cat that sort of concerned me. And she didn't bat an eyelid. She did not seem surprised in the least, which I thought was incredibly weird. I gave her my telephone number and my name, explained what it was all about, and she actually spoke to the landowner while I was with her, and the landowner promised through her to contact me to discuss it. So after sending her my details, uh, I never heard a thing. Yeah, I don't know how to take that. And it's a week and a half later, and it perhaps isn't a priority for him. And it's so difficult to know, isn't it, what the attitude is. But uh, And of course, it's more difficult speaking to people cold about these things. It is. I mean, I was expecting more surprise. I was actually expecting to be laughed at or to be told that I was being silly. However, the lady I spoke to who was, I'm assuming, an owner of a horse there, um, she just did not seem shocked at all. So I I do wonder whether it's something that's been discussed in the past. Yeah, and they keep it under wraps a bit. You now have learnt firsthand how awkward it is for a witness to say anything to anybody. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, you can understand why most people perhaps don't say anything. We assume most people don't tell many people. I'm very much of the opinion that I'd like to see the animal nice and safe and carry on with its life. I feel quite protective over it. Had I not had some form of corroboration through sort of the photographs and the short video clips, then I probably wouldn't have said anything to anybody, or maybe very close friends. I was listening to another one of your podcasts earlier on where two witnesses were travelling in opposite directions on the same road. They were able to discuss it in passing. I think that corroboration probably made them feel safe enough to say something without being labelled in some way. So without the photographs and the short video clips, I don't think I would have said anything to anybody. 
I think people are relieved if they can somehow get some kind of confirmation through another person or through some reinforcing factor. Quickly on the photos, I mean, it's so difficult to know what to do, if anything, with photos that are potentially slightly helpful. I I would say, you know, sorry to be a bit iffy about them, I would say they're not going to be that influential, although the fact that you've got several, you can see the movement, you can prove the scale, and I think most reasonable people hopefully would say, well, yeah, it can't be much else. A shame you haven't got the tail, but it has got the form. One of the animated pictures that I sent it shows it lurching forward and you can tell from the movement there that it's very cat-like. So based on that alone, I rule out any kind of canine involvement. I'm happy for the photos to be used to learn. I don't think you can pinpoint the location from the images. And it's so often the case that witnesses, they're hedgy and cagey in what they say because they don't want to compromise the animal. When you've had quite a sort of significant sighting, I would say a 15-minute one is a significant encounter. It's going to stay with you, isn't it? This is going to be a key event in your life. Is that, do you think, going to be a blessing for you or a curse? Which way do you think it's going to go for you? If I had to go between blessing and curse, I'm definitely seeing it as a blessing. There's no negative side for me. I feel incredibly privileged to have seen it. I feel this really overwhelming sense of protection and, I don't know, almost a kind of a secret thrill of having seen it. There's very few people that I've told. I've I've told my daughter. I've told one or two colleagues. I've only told people who were going to be okay about it. And I'm quite content with that. I would love for somebody else to have an independent sighting. And again, on, on the basis that the animal doesn't come to any harm. You live quite close to this location as well, but you had not heard of any reports in the press or through the grapevine or through the neighbourhood. So it was a complete surprise to you. It was a total surprise. Something of a coincidence because I've listened to three episodes of your podcast after hearing you on a different radio show. I subscribe to your podcast. I do a lot of commuting, so it's great to have something fresh to listen to. This was perhaps two miles away from where I live, so it's no distance at all. This is something that I can revisit very easily. I don't really hold much hope of seeing it again. In the few days afterwards, I did do some Googling and found out that within sort of 20 to 25 miles, there have been over the years quite a few sightings. So I I do wonder whether it's the same animal or part of the same family. I find that in some way quite comforting that it's on the move and hopefully won't come to any uh, harm. Yeah, sure. You never know whether it's the same one or different ones that are related or not. Uh, Certainly, I would say 20 miles west of you, I've got some cameras up at a key business. Police went there and, and they prompted the person to get in touch with somebody like myself to put cameras up and help monitor the situation. Uh, That was a big black one that's seen. But to compound things, they've heard recently twice in late evening the mountain lions, you know, the high-pitched screechy scream of the brown puma-type cat. But that does happen. You know, both types of cats get seen. We heard that recent episode revisiting the Exmoor Beast when black ones were seen and brown ones were heard. Reflecting the fact that there are many more sightings across Britain and in the home counties even, what do you feel more generally about big cats possibly naturalising, Paul? Have you got a personal thought on it? You might be able to assist me on this because I thought on the balance of things that 
initially perhaps it was miss sightings or somebody's seen something and it was actually something else but for these animals to be around they need to be breeding somehow so as i understand it a lot of private zoos and menageries were released at some stage but would they have been released as breeding pairs perhaps because i would have thought that a male and a female in the uk would have to go some to bump into each other uh, yeah, but it depends how many there are, and they're really hardwired to find each other. And sometimes there would have been a founder population from a release, which included a male and female. They live their lives mainly as solitary cats. You know, most of the cats, nearly virtually all of the cats, other than lions, are mainly solitary. Once mother's cast off the litter after eighteen months to two years, she's back on her own again, and they live a sort of solitary life with a male encompassing female territories. They do these scent marking back foot scrapes into a sort of crescent and then scent mark those. And so they communicate by the male is spending his whole time really looking for oestrous females in that kind of method. They're calling when they're in heat and they're scratching trees. So there's various communication signals. That's their purpose, you know, to communicate. So they will find each other. But of course, in a country with a very, very low population, I think the breeding is, you know, hit and miss. But those of us who are trying to find out more do feel, as radical as it seems, there's some territory set and they can meet and breed. If you listen to the podcast, there's some credible people talking about mother and cubs now. That one you observed, you wouldn't have felt it was straight out of a zoo or straight out of a release situation. It presumably looked wild and as if it knew its place from your observation. So this animal was very self-assured. It was it, it knew what it was doing, and it, it certainly looked more at home than I was in the field. Um, but uh, the points you made there are very interesting. Uh, that that was the only real thing that I was dubious about as to whether there would be enough for a breeding population. But if there is, then I think they should be left to get on with it and live their lives. And they're absolutely amazing animals. It's all well and good seeing a video of one on YouTube, but you don't get the sense of beauty and mystique that you get when you see one in real life. That's something that really stayed with me. And, and I can understand what you were saying earlier on about people who become obsessed with it, because it's such a magical sight that it would be very easy to become obsessed. I was incredibly pleased to have that experience for myself, and uh, that's going to stay with me for a long time. What would you think, though, if one or two are causing a bit of hassle? Does that, that affect your opinion on them? When it comes to predating upon sheep or deer, so I, I guess with deer, we only really know that a deer gets taken if we find a body. With the sheep, I, I'm guessing they stay within the field where they're taken. That's going to be a matter for the farmer. And I feel bad for the farmer, but equally, there are all sorts of things that will take a sheep down and end its life. And this is just another thing. There is a, a benefit to all of the species existing together. Anything else you want to say? Any, any other reflections you've had that we haven't covered? I would love to see another one. I think that the chances against it are probably quite slim. I'm just touched by the whole experience and I'm, I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to tell you about it. Well, that's lovely.
I think if the farmer, the landowner, does make contact or maybe talk about whether they'd be interested in putting up trail cameras, that's the way really you could investigate it further, particularly if it's so close to you and you could probably work out the most likely entry and exit points that it would use, looking for deer trails at the margins of that field. If it comes back, where's it going to go? Where's it going to be funneled? And to install a trail camera if you get permission from the farmer and keep in touch with them about it. That's what I would do in your shoes. There's nothing stopping me going back and taking another punt to try and contact the farmer. There's some woodland in the direction, actually, that it was going. And there's plenty of muntjac floating around in there. It's not going to be short of some food. Yeah, it would be intriguing to know how far it does go. That's what we all agonise about. But uh, when's it going to come back? And if it does come back, you know, if you've got a camera there, then fingers crossed. Absolutely. Great. Well, Paul, we're so grateful to you for sharing that with us. Well done for recording that. It was a lovely start to the show by hearing you live at the time. And please get back to us if you find out any more that we need to hear about. I'll keep you updated, Rick, and very grateful for your time on this and also for the advice that you gave me over the intervening days. It was really helpful to investigate what had gone on there. Great. Good luck with everything, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. Take care, Rick. And you. Cheers. Before our word of the week, a quick pointer to the website, because although I was a bit brutal about Paul's photos that we've just discussed, they're of course worth a look at, and you can judge for yourself. They are under episode 33 on the references and links page of Big Cat Conversations website, and there's a daytime photo of the barrel that Paul mentioned, and that helps to indicate the scale. A big thanks to Paul for permission to show those, and I ought to mention that Paul's daytime job means he is a trained and an experienced observer, and you may have picked that up from his style and his whole approach, especially in his live recording that we heard at the start. Now on to our word of the week, and that is chuffing. Chuffing is a snorty greeting sound that some large cats can make, and it is non-threatening in its nature. It seems to be more observed in tigers, and there are plenty of examples of tigers doing that on the web if you do a Google search for chuffing. It is also called prusten, and that is from the German verb to snort or to sneeze. So it's a non-threatening, mainly nasal sound, and one of the cats at Exmoor Zoo exhibits it well, and so we'll hear a little bit more about it coming up in the second half. So in this next half, we meet Danny Reynolds at Exmoor Zoo, talking about the Exmoor Beast and the Black Leopards and the Pumas at the zoo. During the visit, we wanted to record Nico, the male puma, chuffing, and play it on this episode. But he didn't oblige, unfortunately, and that was probably because we just rattled him a bit by filming him reacting to a life-size replica puma that we took along. You can see him eyeing up the model puma on a clip on Britain's Big Cat Mystery, the documentary Matt Everett is producing coming out very soon now. We wanted to gauge Nico's reaction to a decoy model like that, so he was still calming down, so we could hardly expect him to be his normal self chuffing away when he walks past visitors. Meantime, on the website references for this episode, we've got a short clip of a captive black jaguar chuffing away, nice and close to the microphone. So that illustrates it nicely. Amongst all the reports I've known of big cats in Britain, I've twice known of witnesses describe the chuffing noise pretty much perfectly, even though they didn't know anything about chuffing and prustin. 
One of those incidents was a milkman, and he was on his early morning rounds, and he came upon a large black panther in a garden in the morning gloom. He was freaked out, of course, but he said the cat made that noise. The cat then turned and calmly walked away, exiting the garden through a hole in the hedge onto an adjacent track. Shortly afterwards, he found out the next-door neighbour, an old lady, was leaving out prime chunks of chicken for the local foxes, so that might have had something to do with it. Now on to our second half, and this is part of the visit I made to Exmoor Zoo in August 2020. So here we are with owner Danny Reynolds by the Black Leopards and the Pumas. We're here at Exmoor Zoo on the 1st of August 2020 after a busy day of hosting punters in post-lockdown period. So everybody's had to wear a mask in the entrance shop and cafe, but outside they don't need a mask. We are joined by owner and director Danny Reynolds, and we've just done filming sessions for Britain's Big Cat Mystery with the Black Leopards responding to the replica black toy, and they've been very suspicious, and Danny's been commenting on it. And Danny, thanks for coming on and joining us for Big Cat Conversations. You're more than welcome. We're sandwiched between Maine Wolf, Puma and Leopard. Everybody's gone home. Birds are in the background, and it's a lovely evening. You can almost imagine the cat out there at this precise moment. And be honest, our lot are listening in as well. Yeah, they're intently curious. Yes, we're being eyed up by Ebony, the Black Leopard, as we speak. We'll come on to Ebony and Black Leopards in a minute. But first, Danny, how's it been with lockdown and COVID? Has it been presumably pretty stressful for you as a zoo owner and director? I always liken it to being a farmer. If you farm and you have a crop and the crop fails, if you haven't got any money in the bank, what do you do? Zoos are based on people coming in the door and if you turn the tap off you just can't turn the costs off and we actually got within six weeks of closing down and we qualified for the uh, the government COVID zoo grant. There's nothing to do with us, we've traded like this for 28 years, it's always been the same but if there's no people in the door you have no money and I suspect there's an awful lot of people in the UK doing this now. Even now, because we've got to allow for social distancing, we've had to cap the numbers in the zoo. So we're operating at about 60, 65% normal uh, summertime visitor level. Have you observed differences in the animals day to day with no visitors? 100%. I mean, now the animals are relaxed. They've had the people come in for the last three or four weeks and their behaviour is reverting back to what it has been for the last 20 years. While there was nobody around, initially it didn't make any difference. Then slowly but surely they started interacting more with the few keepers and all of a sudden they were really, really interested in what was going on around them because there was no entertainment taking place. Uh, it's a very strange thing to say, but as a zoo owner and somebody who's looked after animals for years, it's very quickly obvious when an animal has got used to it, like the environment it lives in, and then it changes. Yeah, yeah. so different forms of enrichment, basically. People are lovely enrichment. They genuinely are. The, the more they scream, uh, the more the small families do, and then you get the, uh, the, the the older generation like myself who quietly walk around and like to look. And of course, as far as the animals are concerned, they're sneaking up on them. And you, you, you can see the differences straight away. So we had to do quite a lot of environmental enrichment as well as uh, the basic husbandry. And of course, uh, at one stage, there was like four of us doing it, and there used to be 16. It was really hard work, but the government grant allowed um, us back to a reasonable number so we could look after the welfare better. Luckily, the weather held. I don't know if you remember the COVID break. It was really uh, very, very warm for the first six weeks. Like an early summer, and now we've had a bit of an early autumn, haven't we, in July and August? 
We have. We're back into the typical Devon summer. Great. Now, we're here by the Black Leopards, and you promote them as the Beast of Exmoor. How do you find that brand? Do people respond? Is it a resonant brand? Is it good for promoting the zoo and are people alert to it? I think so. The myth of or the legend of the Exmoor Beast has been around for a long time, and it's, it's a little bit like folklore. For those who've had the experience of seeing a big cat in the wild, they've often, perhaps reluctantly and very carefully, talked to other people about it. And the consequence of that is there's enough background interest, even from people who don't believe uh, that there's an escaped wildcat, for them to come and see what perhaps somebody that they know may have actually seen in the wild. Um, And in the wild, in this case, we're talking about the UK instead of, um, well... Southern Africa, India, Australia, apparently. I just um, briefed Danny on the um, Australian situation, which he was unaware of. He'll have to listen to episode 10, Danny, on Big Cat Conversations, all about the Aussie Panthers. So there we are. Back to the Beast of Exmoor. How do people respond to black leopards as exhibits and specimens in the zoo? There's certain iconic animals which zoo collections tend to keep and traditionally have kept. Um, Zoos today tend to keep more what is fitting for the environment they have. And the nice thing about leopard, particularly on the side of Exmoor, and more means rain, means cold, means wind, is that leopards can quite happily take those conditions and they survive and breed well in the wild in many scenarios just like that. So here they actually fit quite well. And having the pumas right next to the leopards, which for me are the two Exmoor beasts, it's something a bit special, you know? Mm. Very few pumas left in the UK on exhibit, uh, deliberately because, you know, 200 years ago, one or two crept in into captivity and nobody's got the genetics of them, so we don't know really where they came from. And it's the same with the leopards. I mean, Zoysia and Ebony here are beautiful black leopards. They're well into middle age now. They're sort of 15, 16 years old. That's over half of their lifespan gone in a captive scenario. And they are the last pair of black leopards in the UK. It is as simple as that. Will they breed? Don't know. Uh, Would I like them to breed? Of course I would. But you've still got to find homes for everything. And it's very important. And a leopard lives till it's 25 in a captive scenario. So these two on exhibit, one of them being hand-reared, absolutely fantastic. It means when you come in the zoo, you can pretty much guarantee you're going to bump into Zoysia, the big hand-reared male. And okay, he wants to come out to play, so he tends to be right at the front, and he'll do a little bit of interaction with you there and then. But you'll come on a sunny day, he'll probably be lying down, and he won't he won't care. He'll do what any other cat does anywhere else in the world when the sun shines on him. He'll lie down, and he'll just absolutely soak up the rays. Now, absolutely beautiful. And, of course, you get the leopards down here on a nice sunny day, and you get that beautiful sheen and colour coat where you actually see... Because these are melanistic leopards, yes. black. Yep. Mm. And Zoys is rare because you can actually see the rosettes pretty well. Yeah, you can. And it, that, that's what's so nice about a, a, a nice sunny day in the summer. You, you can come down here and you can get that beautiful coat pattern and colour. And you can actually get close enough to sense the power and the majesty and to be able to interact in your own way. And that's probably one of the unique things about this zoo compared to other places. The environments are done for the animals. They tend to relax very, very well. Yeah. 
So we're standing next to a lovely little sort of meadow area and we're hearing the birds flutter around. So it has got that sense of wildness enclosure, big bamboo, shaggy bamboo, hedge bias. So it does feel a bit like an Asian situation, Asian environment where Asian black leopards are around us. Yeah, I've been in Corbett National Park and I've seen the dense rainforest and the jungle and I know there's black leopards in there. Have I seen them? No, of course I haven't. No chance. Not in dense rainforest. Out on a nice African plane in a Jeep. Yeah, okay. Yeah, there's every chance because they're used to that. But no, when an opportunity arises to not be near people, yeah, because they know you're dangerous, they don't come. In a zoo, it's a different world entirely. And that's why you visit a zoo. You meet animals you'd wish to see in the wild. Yeah, and I think that's the critical bit. You really do get a chance to get up close and see how big a puma actually is. Because it's not one of the big cats, a puma. No, no, no. Well, I was going to say that was the next... You cued the next question because... On the podcast, I often say how similar leopards and pumas and black leopards and pumas are. Now, I think you're going to say that maybe I oversimplify that, but I, you know, I would make the case that they are. If you sprayed Fleur or Nico, the tan-coloured pumas behind me here, and put them in with Zoiza and Ebony, they'd pass as black leopards, wouldn't they? Yeah, so, OK, I... I I'm not going to knock that in a general statement. Um, the trouble is you're talking to a zoo director who's worked with both of them and I can see the difference immediately. I can sense a long diplomatic answer coming back to put me in my place. You can still see the cheetah origin inside that puma, whereas the leopard with a different angular face and different body structure and walk is completely different. But, yes, I can see what you're saying. If you had a glimpse of them from 50 metres at dawn or dusk in the wild... Okay, the ear shape is a little bit different. The tails are marginally different, but they're pretty much the same form and behaviour. Okay, the vocalisations are different, but... A general person would have a problem telling those two apart, but that, I don't think that's the point. The point is everybody be able to tell a cat. Yeah, we all keep cats and dogs, and you instinctively know when you've got a cat in front of you. The way the body posture changes and the tails held up and the way they interact with the environment, yeah... Um, they're much more working with the environment than a dog is. A dog is there. Yeah, a cat is amongst things. Yeah. And chooses its moments to reveal itself and be active or whatever. Yes, and it very much is a case of choice. You don't surprise a cat. They've made a choice that they're not too worried about you there if they're going to see them. And that's the critical thing about the zoo exhibits. You need to understand your animals. That's key. And that's why I love Zoiza. Zoiza's hand-reared. He's been hand-reared since six weeks of age. And... He is reverting back to a leopard, but he'll never really be a leopard, and he just loves people. He lacks wildness, which Ebony has got, but it makes him a better zoo specimen because people can see him up close and pacing around, and he makes little sort of... Uh, he doesn't chuff like Nico. We'll talk about Nico's chuffing, the, the male puma's chuffing in a minute, but Zoiza does make little grunty sounds, doesn't he? Zoiza will interact. He'll interact much better now with Ebony. I mean, it took him six months to even acknowledge she was in the pen because he'd been hand-reared. The whole integration of the two was it was unique. We have now got proper cat uh, copulation taking place, uh, but that took nearly seven years, and you'd think that would be ingrained, you know, um, because of that hand-rearing part and because he wants to interact and he latches onto people, particularly the keepers uh, and myself. It's really nice just to take your time and look at the animals and watch them working their own environment, you can get a really good understanding in a zoo captive scenario about what they're doing in the wild. And you've got to be able to put it together and understand. Now, onto the vocalisation of the pumas. Now, both your pumas, I think, are 
uh, sparkling cases of, of adults in their prime. I think they could be used in film sets, but uh, they're perfect specimens. But Nico is an absolute gent. When he goes past you in the, in the outside bit, there's a glass bit that you can't hear him, but through the chain link fencing at the side, he does chuff when he goes past you each time. So what's that all about? He does it all the time, and he, he won't do it for a stimulus. Uh, he'll only do it when he's in the right frame of mind and um, when he's relaxed in, in many cases he will occasionally do it when he's surprised um, and he will also do it when he wants to interact it's not one I can put my finger on and I've looked after him for 15 oh hang on let's get this right Oh, it must be eight years now at least Gosh, yeah, yeah. I'm, try- I'm trying to think back I mean they've had uh, three lots of triplets they've been on the Norin for four years now which is to stop them breeding um, and that, that was, that's a real shame with some lovely triplet um, babies um, mm-hmm. yeah. um, but it's a sign that he's, he's not stressed and he's acknowledging the human being in front of him my interpretation of it is that he's saying I'm okay you're okay there's no need for a confrontation no need for a scrap nobody's going to get yeah. I haven't seen any of that sort of confrontational snarl, grimace, change of face attitude that you expect with your own cat when it meets another one or anything like that, or a dog or anything similar from him in the whole time I've been working here. He is, uh, the puma as such are a lot more relaxed and chilled as a species, even compared to a leopard. I often tell people if I'm doing a, you know, one of the talks up here, and I don't always do them anymore now, um, that if I inadvertently walked into the pumas, I'd probably walk out again. Um, whereas I make the response, if I did that with the leopards, I think... You'd, you'd be have, in hospital. I think somebody would have to come and get me out. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Can we go back to the leopards and just ask you an irresponsible question? And that is that if I was going to be daring and theoretical and say, Danny, let's actually let Ebony out for a few nights... What do you think she would do? Would she come back for food? Or if she managed to swat a rabbit, do you think she'd want to stay out? How quickly would something like Ebony, a fairly wild zoo specimen, go feral? Because that must have happened, we think, as part of the background to the Beast of Exmoor and others around the country. Would she come back initially for food, do you think? If Ebony escaped her enclosure and I wasn't quick enough to shoot and kill her, uh, which is my requirement under law, she'd be gone. You'd never see her again. You don't think she'd come back the next day at five o'clock for food? No, this is a leopard. Uh, the leopard will adapt. Its instincts are there. I know from other cats which have got out within a day or so, they're catching and killing rabbit. Um, they've taken on uh, small deer. They'll even go to sheep if need be. They don't particularly like sheep, but they will if they're hungry enough. The world will open up and it will change from what she was used to and she will just go on and on we better let zoiser out then because he'll be back won't he unfortunately zoiser will come out of the enclosure he'll walk around here and the first person he'll want to play with is the first human he bumps into he's very strong very large teeth <laughs> okay so ebony would initially survive on small prey that she can manage but she wouldn't be able to bring a deer down straight away because she hasn't been taught and it would take a while and she'd botch it initially wouldn't she for a while yeah um this is all in the land of supposition with a lot of animals, there's the built-in genetics and hard wiring, which, as they get hungry, I think clicks in and works very, very quickly. Just because they've been fed for a long time uh, with dead meat in a set period of time doesn't mean to say that they're incapable. And I know from my own experience here that if opportunity arises, 
it's taken and it's taken so quick you couldn't blink. So from my point of view, I really think once they're out, they're out. Fair enough. Okay. Now, in some sanctuaries and wildlife parks and zoos, they believe that when the female leopard or female any cat has been in heat, this is in Britain I'm talking about, wild ones have been attracted and have come and responded to that and they've actually seen or heard a male calling or visibly in the background in fields next to the zoo. Do you think that's ever happened here? In all the years I've been here, 26, 27 now, with all the snow we've had and all the camera traps on the perimeter, all the opportunity from both puma and leopard, I can tell you that the one sighting I saw back in 94 which was not really that close to the zoo, which was really rabbiting. I have never seen or heard of a leopard coming in contact around the perimeter of the zoo. Yet less than three or four miles away, people are telling me they've seen them pulling massive carp out of the local ponds. So you do get sightings in the vicinity, but never adjacent to the zoo because of the female in heat, you think? I don't think I've ever heard or have any knowledge of a leopard coming near or close to this zoo since that period and that one opportunity when I actually saw them in the wild here. Yeah, can you tell us about that? You think it was a rabbit warren that was attracting it, do you? Yeah, um, it wasn't long after we actually got here because we took the zoo over in 93. And uh, when we did, there was a massive rabbit warren. You'd see up to a thousand rabbits out there. Unfortunately, the, uh, the Chinese visual hemorrhaging disease came in and we wiped the colony out about two years later. But the puma that we saw, we are sure was actually hunting and was here in the vicinity because of the food source. It was at least 20 separate local people who bumped into it into a two-week period, and then it was gone and never been seen back since. And many of those people didn't know of each other's sightings, presumably. So no, they... no, that's the good thing about being a zoo and a focal point. You, um, you get to learn from various people, bits and pieces, and you can amass things over time independently the different witnesses and the statements and the people you meet verify one another you get to paint a very nice picture and it's amazingly interesting and it's the one talk i really enjoy doing but i have to let my keepers do it because without being horrible that's why they look after the cats and it's their one opportunity to talk about their own animals that they're looking after well finally big cats out in the wild more generally and more distributed across the britain it seems what's your general view on that is it good thing bad thing do we know are there issues that we've got to be alert to what's what are your sort of views on the issues i think it's romantic i know that's the wrong answer but i really really love the idea that hidden out there in the forests and in the hedgerows where you and me go for a walk sliding around making a living without being known are at least a group of puma probably some leopard as well and it's going to take a long time before positive proof and the numbers are such that we start to take an interest because they're not going to want to come into contact with you or me they're not going to do us any harm yes they will frighten the living daylights out of you if you're one of those poor unfortunate people that just bumps into them when they've made a decision that they don't care the fact that they actually see you yeah um and yes if you're walking your dog and your dog reacts badly and i'm, I'm really sorry but I, I genuinely think it's nothing to be worried about because of the environment they're living in because they respect you and they give you the fear that is due another apex predator like themselves. What about some of the issues of the occasional misbehaviour, like overdoing the sheep killing or taking somebody's dog? Do you think we just have to learn to live with those and support those people who have those issues to deal with? As a zoo owner, an ecologist, 
Yeah. I really believe in the cycle of life. I'm not a Hindu, but I love the religion. The Indian and Asian people have had to deal with tiger and leopard for the whole of their existence. And they have managed to do it. Yeah. One or two people go and kill them, one or two cultures, but the majority of the cultures live with them around them and they accept it as part of life. And we share this planet with the animals we live in. And for me, if something can make a living and a life yeah, around you and it doesn't interfere, then let it get on. Enjoy it being there. Enjoy the beaver return. Enjoy the consideration of maybe wolves again back in the UK. I know it's going to upset the farmers and people. But if we want it and we can afford to recompense the people concerned, then consider it because it was here and they were here before we even stepped onto the shores of the United Kingdom. Yeah, depending on how far you want to go back. Yeah. They're functionally so similar to the lynx, aren't they, really? The deer killer. Yeah. Up here on the moorland, you can see the effect of the deer. Yeah, you can see the numbers populate. And I know they're controlled by request uh, with a rifle, but it would be so much better if it was done naturally and people could see that animal and enjoy being part of the landscape where the odd opportunity arose to bump into an apex predator. Mm. And in fact, you said you know it's going to annoy the farmers. I do think, in a way, farmers are not one homogenous camp of people. They, the views do differ depending on circumstances and approaches. I know many farmers who actually are protective of these animals, but it doesn't mean to say they might be in all circumstances. If these cats were misbehaving, I think they might take a different view. But not all the conservationists, not all ecologists feel the same, not all farmers feel the same. No, I genuinely think links should be um, back within the UK. It would be so much prestige to be able to say, you know, in 50 years' time, I've got European, Eurasian lynx living on my farm. And just to be able to have them there, if it costs you a little bit of livestock, as long as it's not too much and it's compensated, I think that would be a wonderful thing. It would be a lovely legacy to be able to uh, leave the rest of the people in the UK in the futures to come. Danny, I know sometimes you get phone calls from the police, sometimes late at night, asking you to check the leopard enclosure to see if your two black leopards are still in it. Why is that happening? It happens a little bit less than it used to. And it's happening because the police have decided that the witness views of the cats that they're being received from the public are credible enough that they need to take it seriously. When perhaps over a day or two, three or four people report in a very similar, in the police minds, credible view of a sighting, they have to start taking things seriously at that point. And one of the things they always do is to ring here and say, can you confirm? And they'll give me a police reference number and everything. You have your cats in and uh, often it's during the daytime and I know they're in there. But I still have to go and look because, you know, without being rude. But when they ring at night, yeah, in the pitch black and they ask you then, you then get worried. Because there's always a chance that they're not going to be in there one day. You go in the pen, you check it, you're absolutely sure everything is okay. Um, but, you know, you never know. Did I leave the door open? Have I left the door open for the first time in 30 years? It's always possible. Um, so you come down with a torch and you have a look. And you, you try finding two black leopards at night in the dark with a torch when they want to hunt you. Virtually impossible. And it's only an enclosed space with some bamboo in it in here. Um, and you can't find them. They, they, they go 3D. They go up in the air. They look down on you. They sneak around the corner. They're sly. They get in every bit of shade they can. And then eventually, when they've actually decided that you're no longer any fun, 
they'll come out and they'll go, hello. And you can hear them snarl. You can catch them in the torchlight. And I, I don't know if you realise this, but if, if you actually catch uh, leopards, uh, retina in torchlight, they actually shine back green. Now, the majority of animals I've known as a kid have always shown back uh, pink, red. Or clear, like a fox's. Precisely, yeah. Green. <laughs> and attach it to a black face and a set of white teeth which open up at that point and a pink tongue that comes out and you go oh you can feel the hairs on the back of your neck going up and and they're behind chain link and you think yeah okay i know you too you're in there that's all right that's lovely so you go and report back to the police and um yeah every time i ask them why um and i always get a different story every time but sometimes it takes at least two three four sightings before the police will actually contact us until they think it's credible just to check that our actual leopards are in particularly if it's black so it keeps you on your toes and it is a sign the police are taking sightings credible or some of the sightings credibly. Definitely. And I mean, uh, the wildlife liaison officer for the area is often in contact. We often talk and yeah, he's borrowed my camera traps and various things for, um, mm. for, for checking out scenarios like this. And yeah, from my point of view, it's all part and parcel of being on Exmoor, you know? Yeah. And I think the Exmoor beast is the Dartmoor beast, is the Bobmin beast. Um, it just wanders around a bit and it keeps everybody on their toes. Yeah, the zoo is part of the ecosystem. That's right. Thank you, Danny. All the best. As we close this show, there are no special announcements this time. So just a note on the next episode, which is The Misfits. So we won't be talking about black leopards and pumas, although actually we will just a bit because one of our guests saw a puma in the wild in Texas. So we'll learn quickly about that. But he's on the show because he saw an unusual large black cat in East Sussex a couple of years back. We'll hear about that encounter and how he worked out what type of medium-large cat it most likely was. Our other guest for The Misfits was driving in Hampshire in the summer and she was seconds away from hitting a very large, unusual cat when she did an emergency stop to avoid it. So she got a dramatic close-up view as it walked away unscathed. So two oddball cats to hear about and consider next episode. That all brings us to a close and a big thanks again to our guests Paul and Danny. Thanks for listening everyone. Please take care of yourselves and looking forward to being back with you next time. Bye for now.